Welcome to The Journey, a chronological study which goes through scripture from Genesis to Revelation in chronological order. Cyrus is kind of the, the, the great conqueror who threw out, Bab- threw out Nebuchadnezzar, threw out Babylon. Um, actually, not Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar was gone, but, but kind of overthrew Babylon. Um, and then uh, Darius uh, comes after him. And that's right, they, there, were this, there was this letter writing campaign to try to prevent the Israelites from rebuilding the temple. There was this big pause because of opposition. And then when they started again, these opposition again wrote these letters, but Darius did the research and said, no, they're supposed to be able to build it, send them a lot of money, and they began building it. Um, and then Xerxes comes into power, and actually Ezra chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, which we already read, just briefly mentions that Xerxes um, uh, became king, and they wrote Xerxes again. They, they wrote him asking him to prevent them from building the temple. It doesn't actually say what his response to that was at this point, um, and it depends, I suppose, on when they wrote him, because what we did learn about Xerxes through the book of Esther is that initially, well, that he wasn't very smart, and he wasn't a very good leader. But initially, he was willing to let the Jews all be executed. But by the end of the book of Esther, obviously, he's not. Um, he makes Mordecai his prime minister. He's got, uh, he knows his wife is Jewish. He's, he's kind of full on board. So it kind of depends when they asked him. Bottom line is, they did finish the temple. And they did celebrate Passover. That's kind of where we were with Ezra coming up to today. Um, and the, the book of Esther kind of is in between chapter 6 and 7 in Ezra. And so now we're back to... Uh, some some something that's kind of out of order in Ezra chapter four. We don't need to go into detail about why it's out of order, but it just it is because the mostly because the author I think wanted to just give another example of another letter writing campaign by these opponents. So they 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 there were opposition during the reign of Darius. There was opposition during the reign of Xerxes, and there's opposition during the reign of Artaxerxes. And Artaxerxes is the son of Xerxes. So Xerxes is assassinated. Um, in 465 BC, Xerxes is assassinated. That's, King, that's Queen Esther's husband. Um, Xerxes is assassinated and is succeeded by his younger son, Artaxerxes I. Now, there are a number of Artaxerxes, which is why he's the first. Um, none of them reign as long as this one, and none of them ever kind of regain the power that they had before Xerxes. It's just a steady downhill uh, uh, digression, regression, that's what I'm looking for, for for Persia here. And in fact, Artaxerxes, it's important to note because it plays into how he responds to things here in this book of Ezra. Artaxerxes faces a lot of rebellions because of Xerxes' kind of lack of diligence and inability to vanquish the Greeks um, and um, just general incompetence. Um, they are kind of sprung up a bunch of rebellions. People sense things were weak. They start rebelling. So Artaxerxes has to kind of deal with that. And that's what he spends most of his reign doing is just trying to put out fires. Um, in Egypt and Cyprus are where we see a lot of them kind of springing up. And by the time Artaxerxes is done, the Persian Empire is yet weaker than it was. It just kind of successfully is getting worse and worse. Um, And during the reigns of Xerxes, as we saw at the beginning of chapter four, and now we're going to read here with Artaxerxes, that letter writing campaign of opposition comes up again. They're like, hey, but now they finished the temple. So now the opposition isn't to rebuilding the temple, it's to finishing the walls. Because once they finished the temple, then they decided to start building the walls of Jerusalem. But as soon as they did, that's where we jump in on Ezra chapter four. So here we go, Ezra 4, 7 through 23. And in the days of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Bishlam, Mithridath, Tobai, and uh, Mithridath, Tabil, and the rest of his associates, let me read that again in a way that makes sense. 
And in the days of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Bishlam, Mithridath, Tabil, and the rest of his associates wrote a letter to Artaxerxes. The letter was written in Aramaic script and in the Aramaic language. Rahum, the commanding officer, and Shimshay, the secretary, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes the king as follows. Rahum, the commanding officer, and Shimshai, the secretary, together with the rest of their associates, the judges, officials, and administrators over the people from Persia, Uruk, Babylon, the, Ele the Elamites of Susa, and the other people whom the great and honorable Asher Benapal deported and settled in the city of Samaria and elsewhere in the Trans-Euphrates. That's just the introduction. Here we are. This is the copy of the letter they sent to him. To King Artaxerxes, from your servants in Trans-Euphrates. The king should know that the people who came up to us from you have gone to Jerusalem and are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are restoring the walls and repairing the foundations. Furthermore, the king should know that if this city is built and its walls are restored, no more taxes, tribute, or duty will be paid, and eventually the royal revenues will suffer. Now, since we are under obligation to the palace and it is not proper for us to see the king dishonored, we are sending this message to inform the king so that a search may be made in the archives of your predecessors. In these records, you will find that this city is a rebellious city, troublesome to kings and provinces, a place with a long history of sedition. That is why the city was destroyed. We inform the king that if this city is built and its walls are restored, you will be left with nothing in trans-Euphrates. Okay, so consider the context in which Artaxerxes is receiving this letter. And also consider the very careful framing of this letter. So remember in the past, there was a letter written of opposition and what, what, what uh, Darius did in response to the letter was he searched the archives and specifically searched to see if they had ever been given permission to rebuild and finds that they were and then gives them a bunch of money. This time when they write the letters, they point the direction they want the archive search to go. They say, search not to see if they're supposed to rebuild, which in fact they are, <laughs> but instead search and see if they've ever been rebellious. And the reason this gets Artaxerxes' attention is because that's what he's dealing with. All over the world, people are rebelling and he's having to put out fires. And these guys are sending him a letter saying, these guys are gonna be trouble. And you can see in their history that they're gonna be trouble. And on top of that, those depleting, you know, the depleting treasury that Xerxes spent spend it all on parties and you've never and all now you're spending it all on rebellion fighting you're losing wealth these guys are going to stop sending you any tributes they're going to stop sending you taxes so those that that's kind of a double threat you're going they're going to rebel against you and in the process you're going to lose money and and so he does he doesn't look to see if they're supposed to rebuild he simply looks to see hey are they in fact rebellious is this accusation plausible and so this is what happens the king sent this reply to Rahum, the commanding officer, Shimshai, the secretary, and the rest of their associates living in Samaria and elsewhere in Trans-Euphrates, greetings. The letter you sent us has been read and translated in my presence. I issued an order and a search was made, and it was found that this city has a long history of revolt against kings and has been a place of rebe rebellion and sedition. Jerusalem has had powerful kings ruling over the whole of Trans-Euphrates, and taxes, tribute, and duty were paid to them. Now issue an order to these men to stop work so this city will not be rebuilt until I so order. Be careful not to neglect this banner. Why let this threat grow to the detriment of royal interests? As soon as the copy of the letter of King Artaxerxes was read to Rahum and Shimshai, the secretary and their associates, they went immediately to the Jews in Jerusalem and compelled them by force to stop. So they've rebuilt the temple, but they can't get the walls rebuilt. They can't, they can't fortify the city. They, can't ha they have to stop. They're forced to stop by the people around them. So the temple's been rebuilt, thanks to Darius. But now with Artaxerxes facing rebellions and losing power, he just, he says, it's too risky. I don't like the threat. Wait, just make them stop. It's kind of a stay, right? And I'll look into it and maybe later I'll let them rebuild. 
but I don't know if he's even going to look into it or cares. And so that's as Ezra 4, 7 through 23. Anybody have any comments or questions on that before we go to chapter 7? Okay. So then we have the then we have 5 and 6, which was about the finishing of the, of the uh, temple, because again, this passage was actually out of order. It should go after that. But they, they finish up the temple and they... They finish up the, and they have the Passover. So there is kind of this renewal. Things are going well. Remember, Joshua is the high priest there. And then this is what happens. After these things, during the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, the son of Zadok. Um, so this is, this is called, this whole book is called Ezra. But it's really here in the last few chapters that we meet Ezra himself. Um, and that we, 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 he starts, in fact, in a little bit, he starts writing in first person. She hasn't done up until now. And it's because this is when he really enters the story. He's been, he's been involved. He knows what's happening. He's been recording the events. But this is where he really, he becomes part of it. He comes to Jerusalem himself. And so it mentions here he's the son of Zadok. I just want to remind you, uh, because the Zadokites are important, not only now, but they're actually important in the New Testament. And so just to give you just a brief, brief uh, just to tell you this and ask you to maybe remember this uh, months down the line. If you don't, you'll remember it when I remind you. Uh, but Zadok, so Zadok was a priest. He was a high priest under David. Um, and Solomon appointed him, or he was a priest under David. And then Solomon appointed him the high priest, so the chief priest, when his priest proved treasonous. Um, and so he removed that former priest. He appointed Zadok. And scripture kind of has mentioned the Zedekites before, specifically Ezekiel praised the Zedekites as being sort of the, the, the only sort of pure line of the Levites, that, that out of all the Levitical priests from the sons of Aaron, only those who were sons of Zadok uh, avoided the idolatry of Ezekiel's day. Um, and so they're, they're kind of special. They're, they're in this lineage. They're the ones that are still considered worthy to be priests in a sense. Um, because they held the line and held on to it. So we're being told here that Ezra is of the lineage of Aaron, but not only of the lineage of Aaron, but he's of the lineage of Zadok, which kind of makes him in that, that rarefied area. Um, the other thing is, and, and because of that, by the way, Zedekites historically held the high priesthood up in, almost up until the return of Jesus, just, a, just about a century before that. Um, they, they don't, but they do up until this moment. And the reason I want you to remember them is because when we, when we talk about the intertestamental period between the Old and New Testament, we'll take a couple of weeks to talk about what happens to the Jews, because this is where we see the, the real growth of the rabbinical uh, kind of wing of, of the Jews. This is where we see, you know, kind of the, a number of different changes that happen to the Jews during that time. But so that when Jesus comes in, one of those things is we see the rise of what are called the Sadducees. And the Sadducees are actually named after Zadok. It's the Zadokis, so or the Zadokites, but it's just through different languages, it's kind of morphed. So the Sadducees come from, from the Zadokites, and we'll see that. And when we get to them and see them in the New Testament, we'll, we'll kind of understand why they look at things the way they do, why they, why they sort of honor what they do, why they're kind of sticklers about things. Um, it's not all bad intention. Some of it comes from the fact that they believe they're from this sort of pure lineage, and they want to hold it. They want to hold the line. They don't want to lose that. Um, there's also something called the Qumran community, which is responsible for what are called the Dead Sea Scrolls. And we'll, we'll talk about them in the intertestamental period as well. And they also have an important connection to the Zedekites. Not that they are Zedekites, but they were looking for the Zedekites. They wanted to put the Zedekites back into the royal priesthood. So part of their job or what they saw themselves doing in the Qumran community 
was trying to refine where the Zedekites had gone um, and put them back into the priesthood. So just, just that's the only reason I mentioned it's interesting here that, that Ezra is one of these guys. He comes from this lineage. Yes, Meredith. Where do the Pharisees come from? Uh, we'll talk about that when they get there. And it's actually really interesting why the Pharisees are where they are, why the Sadducees are where they are. The Pharisees come from a priesthood as well, um, sort of in con con uh, competition with the Sadducees. And they come from the priesthood that arises in that last century before Jesus comes back. So they're the ones so they're that not came kind right of like around right to. now. No, no. All right. So it goes on. It says the son of Zadok, the son of Ahitab, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Marioth, the son of Zehariah, the son of Uzi, the son of Buki, the son of Abishua, the son of Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. So it works. Oops. Looks like we lost Craig, and now he's back. Welcome back, Craig. I'm sorry I offended you. No, I, did everybody fall in that hole? Just me. It was just you, I think. <laughs> <laughs> you just, you seized up and I kind of waited and, oh. and I was, no, oh, and then it tried to log back in and it didn't. So I had to log out, log back in. I'm back. Uh, well, let me double check. Was I talking to myself there for a while or was I still there for the rest of you? I was, it was fine for me. Okay. I saw head nodding and it wasn't a yes or no question. So I didn't know <laughs> what that meant, but thank you for clarifying. Um, it was. It was a no question and then a yes question. So I went, no, you didn't uh, <laughs> Yes, we could hear you. <laughs> oh, that's good. Thank you, Sue. I missed the first no. So I was just confused. I wasn't paying enough attention, apparently, to the complicated gestures going on. Um, okay. Uh, yeah, sorry about that, Craig. We're, we're, we're all still here. Somebody else will have to catch you up on the Zetakites at another time. Actually, we'll talk about them again in a couple months. All right. Uh, let's see. So the son of Phineas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. So again, we're, we're being told that Ezra has a direct lineage back to Zadok, and then, of course, because Zadok does anyway, but from there back to Aaron. So he is, he is in the right lineage to be the high priest. Um, and this is important to the history of the Jews. Uh, Ezra becomes a really important figure. He is regarded important. We'll talk about another reason that is here in this very next verse. It says, this Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a teacher, well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. Now, this is an interesting phrase, and, and we may not think much of it, but it, this is really significant because there's a switch here. There's a shift that happens in what the priest's duty is and in what the priest is expected to do. And there's a really reasonable reason for this shift. So in the time of prior to Ezekiel, uh, you know, back in the time of Zadok, back in the time of, you know, the priests as we saw them before the exile, the priest's most important duty was dealing with what? Who, who, who would guess? There may be several right answers. Pick one. Sacrifices. Okay. Wow, amazing. There may be several right answers, but you all gave the same one. Um, yes, sacrifices. And the, the point is, what, what needs to be around for the sacrifices to happen that isn't around after the exile? That should be an easy question. The animals. The temple. The temple. Animals are still around, I suspect. But yeah. yes, the, the, the temple. Yes, exactly. Um, so the priest was all about the temple. The Levites were all about the temple. Then the temple's destroyed. They're off in Babylon for all this time. Then you have people like Ezekiel, who's a priest. But what does he do? He doesn't spend any time in the temple. He does all this, spends all this time in prophecy. So he's a prophet. So that, that works for him. Ezra, so far as we know, is not a prophet. Ezra is told, he, we're told to us, he is a teacher, 
well-versed in the law of Moses. And what begins to happen for the priests from here forward, even as they rebuild the temple, the priests become those, this word teacher, by the way, it could be scribe. Um, it's actually the word book, book, what is it? It's like book person, um, if you kind of put it together. So it's the, it's people of the book. And this is historically when the Jews came to be known as people of the book. They don't have a temple. They're all about this law of Moses. And there's indication that prior to the exile and prior to people like Ezra, the law was not as important. I'm not saying it was unimportant, and it was clearly important to God, but it wasn't as important to the people of Israel as it becomes later. And I think an indication of this is, for example, you know, you have Josiah, King Josiah, finding the law, and everybody's like, whoa, what is this? We've never heard of this. You know, there clearly was kind of a, a neglect of it. But from Ezra forward, we see the priests become the kind of people like the Sadducees, like the Pharisees, like the Qumrans. We see the priests become the people whose primary concern is Scripture, is kind of holding on to the law and making sure that's not lost. Because the temple can be taken again. The temple can be destroyed again. Their homeland can be taken again. But if they have the law in their hearts and they have people who teach it, that can't be taken away. That can be passed on whether they're in exile or whether they're at home. And so this becomes kind of the new emphasis. And so Ezra becomes known among the Jews as a mosaic kind of figure. He's, he, he lead, think of it. He leads people we're about to see. He leads them out of their exile back to Jerusalem um, across the desert takes four months, a lot less than 40 years, but nonetheless, he leads them across the desert back to the promised land, and he's said to be someone who really regards the law of Moses and teaches the law of Moses and understands the law of Moses. There's even a tradition, just to kind of show you how strong this is, let me see if I can find this really quick. Let's see. I guess I didn't, I didn't actually write it in here, but I was reading that there's this tradition among the Jews that at one point um, that the law of Moses had actually been lost, that no one could find it and no one knew it, right? Because the temple had been destroyed and the, the priest keeping track of it didn't know it. And that God actually re-revealed it to Ezra, much the same way he did to Moses, that he kind of just said, here it is, here's the entire thing. But in this case, it wasn't just the law and the Ten Commandments, it was the entire uh, first five books, the Torah of the Old Testament. That he basically redictated it to Ezra. That's the that's a tradition. That's a legend. We don't know that that's true, but it shows the high position in which Ezra is regarded as sort of a mosaic figure, bringing the law, bringing people out of exile, bringing them back to Jerusalem. And so when it says here that kind of simple little phrase, he was a teacher well versed in the law of Moses. That that that's a very simple phrase, but it's signaling this change among the priests that this is what becomes important for the priests going forward, even when the temple's rebuilt. And we see that in the New Testament a lot. So it says, he was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him everything he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Some of the Israelites, including priests, Levites, musicians, gatekeepers, and temple servants, also came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. This statement that God had given him everything he wanted because God's hand was on him, that, that's very relevant because think about the fact that King Artaxerxes is not really disposed to be favorable to the Israelites. He said you can't rebuild the walls. And yet here comes King Ar here comes Ezra saying, I want to go back to Jerusalem and I want to take a bunch of people with me. And King Artaxerxes says, sure, go for it. And we're going to see, in fact, that King Artaxerxes is even more generous than that. 
Um, and, and I think there's a distinction that he's making, which we'll talk about in a second, which, which allows King Artaxerxes to kind of thread the needle here. But I also think that it is just God, that God is, is making Artaxerxes respond favorably to everything Ezra wants. Um, so he's going to send him back. So the wall building is stopped. I think the, 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 the line, as I said, that kind of the, the, the line that Artaxerxes is walking here, the reason he ends up being so favorable to Ezra is because they've already, the temple's already rebuilt and they've already established the policy. And that continues to go forward, even with Artaxerxes. Xerxes wasn't so keen on it. Artaxerxes seems to be fine with it. Maybe he's hoping it'll quell rebellions. He returns to the policy or emphasizes the policy that you can worship whoever you want to worship, that you can worship your God and you're welcome to do that. Just don't stop paying your tribute. Don't stop paying your taxes and don't rebel and you can worship whoever you want to worship. And so even though he doesn't want them to rebuild the political center of Jerusalem, the temple's already been rebuilt. So when Ezra says, I want to go back, Ezra clearly is much more concerned about the religious tenor than he is about the civil tenor. And so for Artaxerxes, he says, yeah, that's cool. You know, you can go back, um, go back and, and do what you need to do with the temple. And we'll see that as we get there. Now, it tells us that Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in King Artaxerxes' seventh year. The simplest, plainest reading of that is the seventh year that King Artaxerxes was king, which would put us at 458 BC. However, as you know and have seen from other situations, sometimes that isn't the way it works. The timing and the way people count changes. And so uh, without going into detail, there are some arguments that this is actually 428 BC, and it's actually the 37th year of Artaxerxes' reign, but it's the seventh year of him reigning by himself. Remember, there were all these co-regency things going on where people count from always changes. There are some people argue this is as late as 398 BC. I'm not clear on the reasoning for that, but I did see that date was one that people had given. So it's not completely clear. I didn't do a ton of research on the 428 and 398 because 458 seems fine to me. Um, and I didn't see any reason that it, it isn't probably just that simple. But regardless, just so you know, if it comes up in your, in your um, Old Testament scholarship cocktail parties, you'll know that there is some question about that dating. Okay. Don't you all so, so Ezra was in in Babylon in exile at the time that the temple was being rebuilt and yes. then returned to Jerusalem later. Correct. Correct. And it doesn't look that way because this is the book of Ezra. But when you read it, when you go back, and I, I, I did not emphasize this point as we went through it initially, and I realized that as I was looking through this today. Yes, he's not actually there. He's just writing about what's happening. Oh, okay. So he, oh, but he came up to Jerusalem in the 70s. But now he's there. Yep. Now okay, he's coming. And, and it's okay. at this point in the book of Ezra that he actually begins to write in first person. And there's a, there's an interesting corollary. There's in the book of Acts, we have Luke writing in third person up until about halfway through, and then he starts writing in first person. And the reason he does it is because that's when he joins Paul. And it's the same kind of thing. He's writing about what happened, but he wasn't part of it until a certain point in the book of Acts. And then as soon as he becomes part of it, he starts writing in first person. And that's, I think, the same thing here with Ezra. He's recording what happened. Now he's going to write in first person. Um, that is, if Ezra is the one who writes the book of Ezra yeah. and or the book of Nehemiah. Um, it could just be someone else wrote it, and these are just his words. We, we aren't really sure. My vote mm -hmm. is that either Ezra or Nehemiah wrote both those books. There's some similarities and the goal seems very similar, so I kind of, I'm kind of in favor of that, but there's no real proof of that. Okay, well, except that this is written in first person, this part seems to at least be that. All right. So, so one more question. So the, yeah. the exiles at Babylon were still um, 
faithful to God, worshiping, being taught by Ezra and other priests. Yeah, I mean, it's a mixed bag, right? Like it always is. And so yeah. just for clarity, you now have some people who've returned to Jerusalem and they rebuilt the temple. You have mm -hmm. some people that have stayed in Babylon and, and, and were faithful. Um, and Babylon, by the way, again, broad term, could just mean all of Persia at this point, who knows? Um, and you've got people like Mordecai and Esther who stayed and appear to have been very faithful, um, mm -hmm. but also noticed that, that they were very careful. Esther didn't tell people she was a Jew. So there's, mm -hmm. there's kind of a range of you know, where people are at in this. And then undoubtedly, I'm sure, well, we know this for a fact, there are people in both Jerusalem and in Babylon who are not faithful, um, who are still doing you know, idolatry and the old sins. We're going to see that in a second. So it's a mixed bag, as always. But Ezra does seem to have a collection of people who want to go back with them to Jerusalem. And I think we're supposed mm -hmm. to see that as laudable and a good sign. Okay. Uh, all right. Yeah, no, those are good questions. Anybody else? Any, any other comments or questions before we press on? Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. And that's where we talked about the dating. It's a little unsure. He had begun his journey from Babylon the first day of the first, first month, and he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month. That's not difficult math. Took him four months to get from Babylon to Jerusalem. Um, and it says, for the gracious hand of his God was on him. And I think the idea is this was a dangerous journey, right? Remember, there's opposition now. There are people who do not want Jerusalem to be rebuilt. There are you know, foreign enemies to cross, to get to Jerusalem. There's, there's not a lot of resources. You're going to see they're given some resources, but presumably they weren't supposed to eat the animals they were taking. They were supposed to take them to the temple. So it, it's a dangerous journey. It's only four months, but I think we are supposed to see it as something that there's a lot of rebellion. There's a lot of chaos. There's a lot of, you know, just, just uh, brigands and, um, and, and, and thieves and robbers on the road. Um, so I think we're supposed to see God protected them through this, much in the same way he protected Moses and the Israelites on the, on the trip from Egypt. And he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month, for the gracious hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. So there it is again. His, his whole life has been about understanding the law and teaching it to people. And so he's going to Jerusalem to do this. And we'll see, in fact, interestingly enough, King Artaxerxes actually commissions him to do this. So this is what it says. This is a copy of the letter King Artaxerxes had given to Ezra the priest, a teacher of the law, a man learned in matters concerning the commands and decrees of the Lord for Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, teacher of the law of the God of heaven. Again, this passage has been so clear over and over. What is Ezra's role? What does he do? He teaches the law. That's what he does as a priest. He says, greetings. Now I decree that any of the Israelites in my kingdom, including priests and Levites who volunteer to go to Jerusalem with you, may go. So King Artaxerxes, carte blanche, anybody who wants to return to Jerusalem with Ezra can do so. You are sent by the king. Not only can they do so, but I'm actually, you're going under my protection. I am commissioning you to go. You are sent by the king and his seven advisors to inquire about Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God, which is in your hand. Moreover, you are to take with you the silver and gold that the king and his advisors have freely given to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem. Together with all the silver and gold you may obtain from the province of Babylon, as well as the free will offerings of the people and the priests for the temple of their God in Jerusalem. With this money, be sure to buy bulls and rams and male lambs together with the grain offerings and drink offerings and sacrifice them on the altar of the temple of your God in Jerusalem. You and your fellow Israelites may then do whatever seems best with the rest of the silver and gold in accordance with the will of your God. 
Deliver to the God of Jerusalem all the articles entrusted to you for worship in the temple of your God and anything else needed for the temple of your God that you are responsible to supply. You may provide from the royal treasury. He's being really generous. For a guy who was worried about the rebellion, he's just given them a, a, a blank check and said, spend it however you want. And there's a couple of ways to see it. One, again, is that he just really trusts Ezra and, and, and thinks that if he can give them what they want religiously, then they won't rebel civilly. The other possibility is that there is an that he had a Nebuchadnezzar experience or a Xerxes experience, and it just doesn't tell us. In other words, we know several times in Scripture we have kings who are not favorable, and God does something, and they're like, "Well, I really like the Jews now." And maybe that happened. We just don't know that story. I think either way is plausible. Um, certainly, we're going to find out in Nehemiah that Artaxerxes is still feeling good goodwill towards the Jews when he lets Nehemiah return eventually to rebuild the city. So at some point, he becomes convinced it's not a threat. It's not a problem to him. And whether that's already happened or not, is not clear. It says, now I, King Artaxerxes, decree that all the treasures of trans-Euphrates are to provide with diligence whatever Ezra the priest, the teacher of the law of God of heaven, may ask you. Up to a hundred talents of silver, a hundred cores of wheat, a hundred baths of wine, and a hundred baths of olive oil, and salt without limit. Whatever the God of heaven has prescribed, let it be done with diligence for the temple of the God of heaven. He is still limiting things to the temple. He's not yet saying rebuild the walls, but whatever you need for the temple, you've got it. Why should his wrath fall on the realm of the king and of his sons? And Artaxerxes is either just uh, uh, patronizing them and saying, yeah, we're worried about your God, or he legitimately is worried that any God of any of the regions he's fighting could turn on him. And that might be legitimately what he believes and would be as true of the Jerusalem as much as anybody. Then he says this, though, very interestingly. You are also to know that you have no authority to impose taxes, tribute, or duty on any of the priests, Levites, musicians, gatekeepers, temple servants, or other workers of the house of God. So again, he didn't want them to rebuild the wall because he needed their taxes and tributes, but he does give tax-exempt status to those who are involved with the temple, to those who are religious. It's not unusual. He, they, again, they did this with other places and other gods, but it is interesting, again, that he was worried about the treasury, but not so much that he doesn't still follow through with this policy. He goes on, and you, Ezra, in accordance with the wisdom of your God, which you possess, appoint magistrates and judges to administer justice to all the people of trans-Euphrates, all who know the laws of your God, and you are to teach any who do not know them. Whoever does not obey the law of your God and the law of the king must surely be punished by death, banishment, confiscation of property, or imprisonment. So strangely, he gives Ezra a little bit of civil uh, authority. Now, he does limit it to punishing people who don't follow the law of God. But if you think about it, that's a pretty, that's a pretty slippery loophole. You know, Ezra could claim almost anything was the law of God if he wanted to, to be king. Interestingly enough, Ezra doesn't become king. He doesn't sort of take over Jerusalem, but it's like he could have. It's like he has that much power and authority, but he chooses to stay very focused on the temple and on the religious aspect of Jerusalem and kind of never, never gets to that place. But that authority also serves to be important because we've never seen in Israel a religious reformation. I don't know if I should say never. We've rarely seen in Israel up till now in the scriptures a religious reformation which did not also come from the king. In other words, usually the king in conjunction with the priest or even the king first was, was the one. Josiah, Hezekiah, David, Solomon. These are the guys that kind of pushed the religious reformations in a lot of ways. But here we have Ezra who is not a king and doesn't even have the king's backing or the governor of Jerusalem necessarily. We don't hear anything about him in this moment. He's able to, to do this religious reformation because he does have that much authority. He does have that much respect. He does have that much credibility. And he does have this commission from the king of Persia, which doesn't hurt. 
Praise be to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, who has put it into the king's heart to bring honor to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way, and who has extended his good favor to me. Here we are, first person, before the king and his advisors and all the king's powerful officials. Because the hand of the Lord my God was on me, I took courage and gathered leaders from Israel to go up with me. So that's the end of chapter seven. Any comments before we go on to chapter eight? Well, I have a question. I mean, it says administer justice to all the people of trans Euphrates. Is it just kind of regarding Israel though? Like and it's regarding, just... Yes, it's regarding the law of God and the, and the Israelites who are believers in the law of God. It's still a very narrow scope. Okay, but it's still that whole, why does he say trans-Euphrates? Trans-Euphrates is the Jerusalem area, but it, it just means if there okay. are Israelites out there that aren't living in Jerusalem, they also are subject to Ezra. Uh, okay. Yeah. Any other questions or thoughts? Okay. Chapter 8. These are the family heads and those registered with them who came up with me from Babylon during the reign of King Artaxerxes. Look, you've been with me long enough. You should have expected this chapter was coming, right? Every time there's a movement of people into the promised land or out of the promised land, we find out who they were. So here we go. Here's our list. Of the descendants of Phineas, Gershom. Of the descendants of Ithamar, Daniel. Of the descendants of David, Hutush. Of the descendants of Shechaniah. Of the descendants of Purush, Zechariah. And with them were registered 150 men. Of the descendants of Pahath, Moab, Elohainai, son of Zariah, and with him 200 men. Of the descendants of Zatu, Shechaniah, son of Jehaziel, and, one, and with him 300 men. Of the descendants of Adon, Ebed, son of Jonathan, and with him 50 men. Of the descendants of Elam, Jeshiah, son of Athaliah, and with him 70 men. Of the descendants of Shephathiah, Zabadiah, son of Michael, and, and with him 80 men. Of the descendants of Joab, Obadiah, son of Jehiel, and with him 218 men. Of the descendants of Bani, Shelomith, son of Josephiah, and with him 160 men. Of the descendants of Bebai, Zechariah, son of Bebai, and with him 28 men. Of the descendants of Asgad, Jonathan, son of Hakatana, with him 110 men. Of the descendants of Adonikam, the last ones, whose names were Eliphat, Jewel, and Shemaiah, and with them 60 men. Of the descendants of Bigvai, Uthai, and Zucker, and with them 70 men. All right. We've seen these kind of lists a number of times. I ask this question most times we see them. I'll ask it again and see what you guys think. Why is it here? Why do we have this list? Anything stand out to you in the list? The numbers are a lot smaller than some of the other lists we've had. For sure. Yeah. We're not we're not talking hundreds of thousands of people for sure. Yeah. Anything else? I don't know what it means, but no, and if you if you add it up, it's about fifteen hundred men. And if you if you realize that there are women and children, the estimate is that there's about six to 7,000 people. So it's not tiny, um, but it's definitely not hundreds of thousands of men. But it's a, it's a pretty good crew for Ezra to bring back. Um, well, they do like seem to like to have an accounting. And then they generally, I don't know if this is part of it, but they generally also like to put like people back in the land that they were given. Yep. Yeah, it's part of this. That's right. Every time we see this list, part of it is to show the, the faithfulness of God to his inheritance. We still know where they belong. We still know what their land is. We still know where they come from. These are, these are people who have this lineage. They haven't been wiped out. Their identity has not been stolen from them from their 75-year exile in Babylon. They still know who they are, and they're going back to where they came from. And that's a really important message in Chronicles and Ezra and Nehemiah is that, that God was faithful to preserve them. And this was part of the proof of it. By, by making these records and having these names, 
we know that we know that we know that we know that God has preserved them. And so that's that's a big part of it for sure. Anything else? I wouldn't expect you to notice because you would have to know the genealogy better than I do to know this. Um, but we're about to find out in a second that there's no Levites, not a single one in this entire list. Um, and again, you don't have to know the genealogy to figure that out because it's about to tell us. So let's keep reading. It says, I assembled at them at the canal that flows toward Ahava, and we camped there three days. And when I checked among the people and the priests, I found no Levites. <laughs> so here he is. Ezra's like, he's gathered everybody. He's put out the call. He's like, who wants to go with me back to bring religious revival? And oddly, the, the people that don't come are the Levites. <laughs> and maybe that's because the ones who wanted to come are already there building the temple, you know, already there with the temple. Uh, maybe it's because the ones who, you know, the ones that are left are comfortable and don't want to go back to work, right? Because that's what it means to be a Levite and go back to the temple means going back to work. Um, you know, we don't know why, but it sort of takes Ezra by surprise and he's not happy about it. Let's, let's keep reading. It says, I found no Levites there. So I summoned Eleazar, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jerob, Elnathan, Nathan, Zechariah, Abmeshulam, who were leaders, and Joyrib and Elthanathan, who were men of learning. And I ordered them to go to Edo, the leader in Kasafia. It's interesting, Ezra, I think is just smart, right? It, it's, he chooses specific people. It says leaders and teachers, so people like him, but also people with influence. He gathers leaders and teachers, and he sends them specifically to the leader, to sort of a, someone who would be seen as a leader among the Levites. So he's, he's not just willy-nilly. You know, first he just put out a call generally, and the Levites didn't come. And he's like, okay, we're going to have to be a little more specific. So he sends leaders and influencers and, and persuaders and teachers back to a leader to say, get me some Levites. <laughs> go, go persuade them to come. Go recruit them. We need them. Um, and so, uh, so he says, uh, I told, and then even he goes further. I told them what to say to Edo and his fellow Levites. So he's like, here's what you're going to say to them, right? So he's very, now he's very strategic and specific. Before it was just like, I hope they'll come, but they didn't. So now he's like, he's picked the certain people. He's picked the people they're going to go talk to, and he's telling them what to say. And that's what he says. I told them what to say to Edo and his fellow Levites, the temple servants in Casaphia, so they might bring attendance to us for the house of our God. Because the gracious hand of our God was on us, they brought us Sherebiah, a capable man from the descendants of Mali, son of Levi, the son of Israel, and Sherebiah's sons and brothers, 18 in all, and Hashabiah, together with Josiah from the descendants of Merari, and his brothers and nephews, 20 in all. They also brought 220 of the temple servants, a body that David and the officials had established to assist the Levites, and all were registered by name. And the way he kind of uh, unfolds this, it is kind of interesting to me because it's kind of like it starts with one guy and then it kind of blossoms. You know, one guy and his family. It's like, okay, one guy's like, yeah, okay, we'll come. And then he's like, and I'm going to bring my kids. And then there's like his neighbor is like, oh, you're going? Well, I'll go and I'll bring all my nephews. And then it's like, oh yeah. And then there were 220 others. And so I think that's kind of how it works. You know, things... <laughs> Things, sometimes it just takes one person to kind of break the, break the ice a little bit, and then others will join in. And so that's what happens. But in a lot of ways, it's just a few families, and they decide to come, and they're going to come take care of the temple. Um, and they're all registered by name. They, again, they know where they come from. They're all sort of verified to be Levites. They're all authenticated, so to speak. Um, and so now they're ready to make their trip. So there by the Ahava Canal, I proclaimed a fast so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask him for our safe journey for us and our children with all our possessions. And then there's an interesting statement. 
I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from enemies on the road because we had told the king, the gracious hand of our God is in everyone who looks to him, but his great anger is against all who forsake him. So this is an interesting thing. And it, I don't know whether we're supposed to read this as a, a little bit of an error on, on Ezra's part or not an error on Ezra's part. It could go either way, but it's an interesting story nonetheless that apparently at some point he, he said to the king, and again, if it was an error, he boasted. If it was an error, he just said it with confidence. Again, it's not clear. There's no judgment here. But he said to the king, hey, God protects his people, and he brings vengeance on those who hurt them. And so now when he's about to make this arduous journey, this dangerous journey, the king has been really generous with money. Ezra knows he could go to the king and say, we need some soldiers. We need some people to protect us. But now he's like, if I go to the king and ask for that, the king's going to be like, I thought you said your God protected you. You know, he's like, I can't. It doesn't look real. You know, it looks, it doesn't look genuine. So he turns and he prays to God and, and God does protect them. So does that mean Ezra did the right thing all along? Does it mean he did the wrong thing, but God was gracious? Again, there's no judgment here. It's not clear. But I find this to be a very human part of the story, regardless. Just that Ezra's like realizing now he's in a little bit of a bind. He's kind of like, ah, I'm afraid to go back and ask the king for more because if I do, I will look like I don't really believe God can help us. So I've kind of put myself in a corner where I have to trust in God, which is not a bad thing. Um, and maybe it was the right thing all along. So he does. So he says, so we fasted and petitioned our God about this, and he answered our prayer. Ezra doesn't tell us how he answered their prayer, except that they got to Jerusalem safely. But it doesn't tell us, you know, what specifically happened. Did angels surround them, or did God just, they just didn't get attacked? Um, we don't know exactly how it happens, but, but the, the point to Ezra is, we relied on God, and he came through. Then I set apart 12 of the leading priests, namely Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and 10 of their brothers, and I weighed out to them the offering of silver and gold and the articles that the king, his advisors, and his officials, and all Israel present there had donated for the house of our God. I weighed out to them 650 talents of silver, silver articles weighing 100 talents, 100 talents of gold, 20 bowls of gold valued at 1,000 derricks, and two fine articles of polished bronze as precious as gold. And I said to them, you, as well as these articles, are consecrated to the Lord. Consecrated means set apart, holy. So what he does is he, he goes ahead and takes some of these priests and he says, I've consecrated you. I'm the leader. I'm the high priest for all intents and purposes. I think it's fair to call Ezra the high priest at this point. I am the Zadok, Zadokite. Um, I'm the high priest and I've consecrated you. I've, I've, I've set you apart for this job. And what part have I set you aside for? To carry these other sacred articles. Um, because that's always happens. You don't just carry the sacred articles willy-nilly. The Levites got to do it and they got to do it right. But he's also entrusting them with a lot of wealth. So he's right off the bat, these people, these Levites that chose to come, he's, he's giving them responsibility, he's giving them stewardship, he's, just, he's, he's putting them to use in their priestly duties right away, before they even get to Jerusalem. He says, guard them carefully until you weigh them out in the chambers of the house and of the Lord in Jerusalem, before the leading priests and the Levites and the family heads of Israel. Then the priests and Levites received the silver and gold and sacred articles that had been weighed out to be taken to the house of our God at Jerusalem. On the twelfth day of the first month, we set out from the Ahava Canal to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he protected us from enemies and bandits along the way. And so we arrived in Jerusalem, where we rested three days. On the fourth day, in the house of our God, we weighed out the silver and gold and the sacred articles into the hands of Meribah, son of Uriah, the priest. And Eleazar, son of Phinehas, was with him. And so were the Levites, Josabad, son of Joshua, and Noadiah, son of Binni. And everything was accounted for by number and weight, and the entire weight was recorded at that time. So the priests were faithful. They, they, the Levites were faithful. They did what they were supposed to do. They took care of the items, and everything was delivered exactly as it should be. 
Then the exiles who had returned from captivity, so I think it's talking about the 6,000 people that came with him, uh, sacrificed burnt offerings to the God of Israel, 12 bulls for all Israel, 96 rams, 77 male lambs, and as a sin offering, 12 male goats. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. They also delivered the king's orders to the royal satraps and to the governors of trans-Euphrates, who then gave assistance to the people and to the house of God. I think the king's orders here that are being translated here are simply that Ezra has some, some authority, that Ezra is allowed to do what he's doing, because the trans-Euphrates satraps, they, the governors, they don't always like it. So I think they're, they're basically saying, king, I'm here commissioned by the king, and I'm going to be teaching my people the law, and you, you're not to interfere. And I think that's mostly what that's about. Okay, that's chapter eight. Any comments before we go on to chapter nine? Um, I like that he set apart the things for God, like at the beginning, because I was wondering why he didn't just, you know, why go to all this trouble there? Why not wait till you got to um, uh, Jerusalem? But I, I like that he initially is just like, does that and has the Levites do their role and everything. I do too. It's like as soon as it's in his hands, he's 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 making them back to what they're supposed to be, consecrated for service to God. And just like with Moses, even when they were traveling, those things were consecrated and had to be carried a special, specific way. So I think he is very attentive to that. And again, it makes sense. He knows the law of God. He's very familiar with how these things are to be handled. Other comments? Good. Hold that thought of Ezra being in favor of the separation, the consecration, the setting aside the purity. Because again, as someone who knows the law, he understands how important this is. So much of the law, we've talked about this before, so much of the, the commands, so much of Leviticus is about setting apart the, the Israelites as the people of God, setting them apart as people who are to reflect what God looks like and, and to maintain a certain purity and to, to only worship one God, not be confused by that. And this is the struggle they've had. And Ezra is so determined to get back to this. And, and that will make sense of what we're going to read here in chapter 9 and 10. So it says, after these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, the people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives from themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. And when I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of God of Israel gathered around me because of the unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. Let, let's talk about this just for a second, because what he's talking about here is intermarriage. And that, that's a difficult thing. Why is intermarriage such a bad thing, right? Why is this a problem? And, and the reason it, we ask that question is because it sounds to us immediately racial. It's not. Or xenophobic. It's not that either. And I think it's important to see the distinction. But remember going back to the law, going, even the, the language here reminds us of Moses entering the promised land. When God said, do not intermarry with the people around you. Why not? Because they're of a different race? No. Because they're of a different culture? No. Because they're foreigners? No. In fact, anybody can convert to Judaism that you want. That's also in the law. It doesn't matter what race they are. It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter where they come from. They can convert to Judaism, and then it's not intermarriage. They didn't get married. The problem is, when you intermarry, it's almost always in this culture a form of alliance. And in the case of the Israelites, it did mean, as God predicted it would, 
that they begin to worship the gods that their wives worship. So they, they become like the Canaanites and they become like the Jebusites. And this began the whole problem of the book of Judges and the, and the problem of Solomon. Solomon's problem with all his wives, it says, was not just that he had a lot of wives, it was that he began to worship the gods of his wives. And, and so that's what's happening now. Here they are, they're back in Jerusalem. They're supposed to be, they've been called out of Babylon now. They're supposed to be coming back and establishing again their identity as people of God. Ezra and Nehemiah, their main concerns are establishing who we are. What does it mean to be a Jew as people of God now that we're no longer a powerhouse? If, if, our, if our identification isn't being the largest and most powerful nation in the world, if our identification isn't being you know, the kingdom that King David brought to bear, if that's not our identification, then, then what is it? And for Ezra, it's the law. We are the people of the book. And the book says we got to stay separate. we got to stay consecrated. we got to stay holy. And as soon as he gets there, he finds out that both the exiles and the, well, I think exiles from both, both that came with them and that were already there, including priests, including uh, leaders, they just married everybody around them for whatever purposes, for whatever reasons, but now it's led to idolatry. And so I think we have to read intermarriage here in scripture as idolatry. That is the issue um, at stake here. And again, Ezra is really determined to get back to the purity, to the separateness of the people of God. And that's even when it says the holy race, that means consecrated. That's what holy means. It doesn't mean superior. It doesn't mean, you know, more righteous even. It means separate. It means set apart for God. And so that's what Ezra's concerned about. We got to get back to that. And we have this problem now where we're so intermarried, we're so entangled in commerce and relationship and family with these false gods. What are we going to do about that? And so he sits there appalled until the evening sacrifice. Interestingly, he doesn't actually have a suggestion. He doesn't, he isn't the guy who comes up and says, here's how we're going to fix it. And I don't know if that's because he doesn't know what the answer is or because he wants them to come to the answer themselves, but the answer does come from somebody else. And this is what we see. Then I wrote at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and cloak torn and fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord, my God and prayed. I am too ashamed and disgraced my God to lift my face to you. Because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. From the days of our ancestors until now, our guilt has been great. Because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity to pillage and humiliation at the hand of foreign kings as it is today. But now for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary. And so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief in our bondage. Though we are slaves, our God has not forsaken us in our bondage. He has shown us kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia. He has granted us new life to rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins. And he has given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. But now, our God, what can we say after this? For we have taken the command you gave through your servant, the prophets, when you said, the land you are entering to possess is a land polluted by the corruption of its peoples. By their detestable practices, they have filled it with their impurity from one end to the other. Therefore, do not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them at any time that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it to your children as an everlasting inheritance. What has happened to us is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt. And yet, our God, you have punished us less than our sins deserved and have given us a remnant like this. Shall we then break your commands again and intermarry with the people who commit such detestable practices? Would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us, leaving us no remnant or survivor? Lord, the God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt, though because of it, not one of us can stand in your presence. Okay, before we get to the resolution of this, any comments on chapter 9? 
Awesome intercession. Yeah. Yes. And like Daniel, he he never distances himself from the sin, even though he's not part of it. He still says we, right? He's 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 identifying with the community. There's something important about that, about many of these prayer intercessors in the Old Testament. All right, but let's go on with the story and then we can comment on it as a whole. It says, while Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children, gathered around him. They too wept bitterly. Then Shechaniah, son of Jehiel, one of the descendants of Elam, said to Ezra, we have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. Let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and of those who fear the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law. Rise up. This matter is in your hands. We will support you. So take courage and do it. All right, this is tricky. If I were in common day to speak to somebody who had married poorly for any number of reasons, uh, I wouldn't send the wife away. <laughs> I wouldn't say, well, now you have to get divorced. Um, I've actually known pastors who've done that. It seems stupid to me. It seems ridiculous. So, but this again is about idolatry and how do we disentangle what's happened? But, but it is a little bit troubling, right? They're sending not only the women away, but they're sending the children away. And so I think it's fine if there's some tension here, if we don't quite know what to make of this. I have read some commentators, which actually think this is an overreaction, that they point out that Ezra did not make this recommendation, um, although Ezra totally goes along with it. They point out he didn't make this recommendation and that maybe this is not what God intended. There's nothing in the scripture that tells us it's not what God intended. So you can argue that, but it's, it's hard to know that for sure. Um, I, I like uh, a couple of thoughts that Clark, the commentator, gives. So I'm going to share a thought he gives, and then I'm going to uh, also read a quote that he gives, which may not be satisfying to you, but it is to me. But we'll see what you think. Um, first thing is just as far as the children going away with the mothers, that's, that's absolutely cultural. That's still true today. In divorces, the children tend to go with the women. So in this point, in this case, they're not punishing the children. They're leaving them with the, the, the nurturer. They're leaving them with their, their primary caretaker. Um, okay, but are they being taken care of? And that leads to the next question. You know, what are they, what's the state of these women and children when they're sent away? Do they have homes to go back to? Can they go back to their families in the foreign countries? And the scripture is silent on this. Um, and so, but, but I'm inclined, because scripture doesn't tell us, I'm inclined to agree with this quote from Clark. So let me just read it to you. It says, though by the Jewish laws, such marriages were null and void. Clark also points out, it's not, not that this matters. Uh, this, is, this is kind of splitting hairs, but it's not really divorce. The, the marriages were probably just null. They were probably annulled, um, considered void since they were not supposed to have happened anyway. But that's not the point, main point. But he goes on and says, though by the Jewish laws, such marriages were null and void, yet as the women they had taken did not know these laws, their case was deplorable. However, we may take it for granted that each of them received a portion according to the circumstances of their husbands, and that they and their children were not turned away desolate, but had such a provision as necessities have required. Humanity must have dictated this, and no law of God is contrary to humanity. The point that Clark is making is this. The law of God is filled with protections for women and children. We already know that. God cares about women and children, and there's all sorts of protections for women and children who are vulnerable when their husbands do the wrong thing. And in this case, the women and children are not at fault. They're not, they, they didn't know the Israelite law. <laughs> they didn't know not to get married. The, the husbands are at fault. And if the law of God is taking care of women and children in this way in the law, and if Ezra is really concerned about the law of God, and we know he is, then, then it is fair to assume that Ezra made sure as they did this, 
that the women and children were not punished, that they were protected through this. Um, I think it's reasonable to assume that if it's God's will. Now, if you assume, on the other hand, that this was an overreach and they were wrong and they shouldn't have done it this way, then then maybe the women and children were not taken care of. But if you assume it was God's will and you assume that Ezra knew the law as well as it seems to, then I think he would have provided for them. He would have said, you know, and remember, he can because the king said, use the silver and gold, however you deem appropriate, whatever you don't use for the temple. So it's a nice, elegant solution. Don't know if it's true. But it's a nice, elegant solution to think that he may have taken some of that silver and gold, given it to the women and children, and sent them back to their homes that they had come from originally. I don't know if any of that's true. I'm just saying it's plausible. So if you, do, if you don't like it, you can wrestle with the tension your own way. That's how it, 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 it works out all right for me. The relevant point, though, why doesn't Scripture tell us that? Why doesn't it tell us what happens to the women and children since we're, we're dealing with that? Well, for our culture, that's super important. We're looking at that, and we want to know, you know what happened to them. The point of the story isn't that. The point of the story is the repentance of the, the Israelites. The point of the story is that they're coming back, they're leaving their idolatrous ways, and they're coming back to God, and they're doing whatever they need to do to do that. That's the point of the story, that, that what happened over there is important, but not to, for the point we're making here. And so it is, it's just, it's just there's not a reason to tell that part of the story here at this moment. So they don't. It'd be nice for us if they did, make us feel better, but they don't. Uh, let me keep going. So Ezra rose up and put the leading priests and Levites and all Israel under oath to do what had been suggested, and they took the oath. And then Ezra, Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the room of Jehonim, son of Elishim. While he was there, he ate no food and drank no water because he continued to mourn over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. A proclamation was then issued throughout Judah and Jerusalem for all the exiles to assemble in Jerusalem. And anyone who had failed to appear within three days would forfeit all his property in accordance with the decision of the officials and elders and would himself be expelled from the assembly of the exiles. Within the three days, all the men of Judah and Benjamin had gathered in Jerusalem, and on the 20th day of the ninth month, all the people were sitting in the square before the house of God, greatly distressed by the occasion and because of the rain. Interesting statement, we'll get there in a second. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, only one other thing I'll point out, the threat if they don't come to repent that they will lose all their property also is in keeping with the fact if, if Ezra does say to them, hey, here's what has to happen, you have to send the wives and children back and you have to give them some of your property. Well, then this is incentive. If the, if the deal is you lose all your property or you lose some of your property, then they're going to be more inclined to go ahead and give up some of their property and, and follow Ezra. And so that might be why that was the choice of punishment for them, too. You're going to give up your property. So if you want to stay with your wife and child and leave, you may. Um, but if you want to be part of the, the people of God, then, then you're going to have to stay, but you're going to have to give up some of your property. All right. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, you have been unfaithful. You have married foreign women. Oh, wait, I skipped something, I think. Or did I? Oh, no, I guess not. You have been unfaithful. You have married foreign women, adding to Israel's guilt. Now honor the Lord, the God of your ancestors, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples around you and from your foreign wives. And the whole assembly responded with a loud voice, you are right. We must do as you say. But there are many people here, and it is the rainy season, so we cannot stand outside. This is gonna, logistically, this is going to take a long time, and we're all getting wet. Besides, this matter cannot be taken care of in a day or two because we have sinned greatly in this thing. There's, we're so entangled. This is going to take a long time to sort out. Let our officials act for the whole assembly. Then let any, everyone in our towns who has married a foreign woman come at a set time 
along with the elders and judges of each time until the fierce anger of our God in this matter is turned away from us. In other words, let's do this logistically, right? And I think this is another indication that they aren't simply just sort of like abandoning their wives and children. They're having to take care of things. They're having to work it out. So for each person who's getting rid of his wife and child, there's some logistics that have to be covered. And I think part of the logistics is taking care of them. So they're like, okay, so we can't just kind of do this here in the rain. So have the officials come, commit to it, have them represent us and say, yes, we're going to do this. And then do them like a calendar. And every family who's guilty will come to the official and it'll get worked out on, a, on an individual basis with each person. Um, only Jonathan, son of Ishel, and Jazaniah, son of Tikvah, supported by Meshulam and Shabbat and Levi, opposed this. Everybody thought it was a good idea, except a couple of them. So the exiles did as was proposed, and Ezra the priest selected men who were family heads, one from each family and division, and all of them designated by name. And on the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to investigate the, the cases, and by the first day of the first month, they finished dealing with all the men who had married foreign women. So it takes three months to, to get through all of this and figure it out. Among the descendants of the priests, the follow had married follow, following had married foreign women. So among the priests, they're now getting called out. These are the ones who are unfaithful, idolatrous. From the descendants of Joshua, son of Josedach and his brothers, Mashiach, Eliezer, Jerob, and Gedalia, they all gave their hands and pledged to put away their wives. And for their guilt, they each presented a ram from the flock as a guilt offering. I don't know why their repentance is specifically mentioned here and not the others. Maybe theirs is less forced, less reluctant, more sincere. I have no idea. From the descendants of Emer, Hanai, and Zebediah, from the descendants of Haram, Masai, Elijah, Shemaiah, Jehiel, and Uzziah, from the descendants of Pasher, Elanai, Masai, Ishmael, Nathaniel, Josabad, and Elash, among the Levites, Josabad, Shemai, Kehiah, that is Kalita, Pathiah, Judah, and Eleazar, from the musicians, Elishib, from the gatekeepers, Shalom, Telam, and Uri, and among the other Israelites, from the descendants of Perash, Ramiah, Isaiah, Malkaijah, Mishamin, Eleazar, Malkajah, and Benaiah, from the descendants of Elam, Mataniah, Zechariah, Jehiel, Abdi, Jeremoth, and Elijah, from the descendants of Zatu, Elunai, Elishib, Bataniah, Jeremoth, Zaban, and Azizah, from the descendants of Babai, Johanan, Hananiah, Zabai, and Athali, from the descendants of Bani, Mashulam, Maluk, Abadiah, Jashub, Sheel, and Jeremoth, from the descendants of Pahath, Moab, Anakil, Benaniah, Messiah, Mataiah, Bazil, Benui, and Manasseh. Okay. From the descendants of Haram, Eleazar, Ishijah, Machaijah, Shemaiah, Simeon, Benjamin, Maluk, and Shemariah, from the descendants of Hashem, Madaniah, Matah, Zabad, Elphalet, Jeremiah, Manasseh, and Shemai. From the descendants of Bani, Madi, Aram, Ul, Benaiah, Bediah, Kuluai, Vaniah, Meramath, Elishib, Mataniah, Matanai, and Jasu. From the descendants of Binui, Shemai, Shalamiah, Nathan, Adahai, Shashai, Sarai, Azrael, Shalamiah, Shemariah, Shalom, Amariah, and Joseph. Joseph. You read a list like that and you feel so good when you get to Joseph. You just get to relax your mouth. Joseph. From the descendants of Nebo, Jael, Mattathiah, Zabad, Zabina, Jedi, Joel, and Benaniah. Uh, Benaniah, not Benaniah. All these had married foreign women, and some of them had children by these wives. Um, okay, that's Ezra, 7 through 10. Thank you for joining us. The Journey is a ministry of Discipleship Matters, which is an extension of Focus Church and is created by David McGill for the purpose of helping equip pastors to build discipleship communities in their own churches. If you'd like to learn more about the books and conferences and coaching offered by David, you can check out his website, davidmcgill.com.